Well, good morning, New Life Church. Good to be with you this morning, worshiping our Lord. If you take your Bibles, please turn to Exodus chapter 20 in the Old Testament. This morning we're starting a new series on the Ten Commandments. And today my goal is to lay a platform, a foundation for us as we explore each and every one of these commandments more carefully. And I do hope that this would be a wonderful time of growing in the Word, growing in the Lord, understanding His will for us, and obeying His His will for us. But many people have asked me what approach I will be taking as we study the Ten Commandments together. And this, this is a good question, because there are many approaches which people can and do take when it comes to the Ten Commandments, when they are confronted with the Ten Commandments. You know, some people say when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He fulfilled the Old Testament law. And they will quote verses like Romans chapter 10, which which says, uh, Romans 10 verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Other verses like Galatians 3.23 Now before faith came, We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And of course other people will use Jesus' words in Matthew 5 to argue that the law is still valid today and we need to follow all the laws to find favor with God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So clearly there's a tension here between the law and grace. And they will use different verses to come to to different conclusions. But this morning my goal is to show you which, which of those roots is a biblical route to follow. So let us read first Exodus chapter 20 from verse 1 to 17, and then I will try and navigate through this this tension that we we see between the law and grace. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. 
But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this passage this morning with, with a lot of different ideas. We come to this passage this morning with a, a lot of different paradigms and different frameworks that we have accrued over the years from different backgrounds. So we pray, Lord, that you would please help us to understand this passage as it is biblically instructed for us, Lord. We pray that you would help us to interpret the word faithfully, that we would be faithful followers of your your word. So we ask that your spirit, Lord, would open our eyes this morning. Um, What could be a difficult passage, we pray that your spirit would make simple for us to understand. And that he would also show us, Lord, that this is very applicable to us and very relevant for us. This is not just something that was written and given to the Israelites so many years ago, but help us to see the practicality of it in our day and age. So we pray, Lord, that we would not just tune out, Father, but that we would pay attention, that we would be willing to hear what you have to tell us, just as we've been learning, Lord, that we would have ears to hear and that we would have hearts to, to understand. So we pray today, Lord, for your spirit to work amongst us and help us, Lord, to, to explain carefully, to expound this passage faithfully. For the sake of your great name, we ask and pray. Amen. So I gave you two viewpoints that people generally take when it comes to the Ten Commandments. And I just want to say at the start that I think both of those approaches are wrong. I think both of those approaches are wrong. And let me explain to you why. Well, the first approach is called antinomianism. And the word antinomianism comes from two Greek words. Um, Anti meaning against, and nomos meaning law. So antinomianism means against the law. And antinomianism is the belief that there are no moral laws that God expects Christians to obey, even today. And antinomianism takes a biblical teaching to an unbiblical conclusion. The biblical teaching is that Christians are not required to observe the Old Testament law as a means of salvation. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he did fulfill the Old Testament laws, as we see in in Romans chapter 10, we see in Galatians chapter 3, we see in Ephesians chapter 2. But the unbiblical conclusion is that there is no moral law 
that God expects Christians to obey today. That is, that is a wrong conclusion. And the Apostle Paul dealt with the issue of antinomianism in, in Romans chapter 6. If you would turn there with me. There were these people called antinomianists even in the early church. And Paul had to address this, this false understanding that was creeping into the church even at that early point in the history of the church. And he says in Romans 6 verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And the most frequent attack on this teaching of salvation by grace alone is that it encourages sin. And people say, so we're not bound by the law, then we can do what we want. I mean, that's not, a, that's not an uncommon thing to hear. It wasn't uncommon even in the time of, of the early church. We can do what we want. We have a ticket to heaven. We are Christians. We are saved by grace. We are on our way to heaven. Let's just behave like we want to. And that's not what the scripture teaches. That is not what the scripture teaches. And this type of thinking is not the result even of true conversion. Unbelievers would, would like that as a, as, as a way of living. But that is not what a, a true believer understands the scriptures to teach. When we become saved, when we yield our lives to God, when we humble to His sovereign rule in our lives, we want to obey Him. We want to honor Him with our lives. And we have a desire to do this. This is not just a duty because we have to do it. We have a desire to want to please God, a true believer. And this is a desire that God puts in our hearts. And this is the desire that is generated by the, the Spirit of God. This is the new person that God makes us. Before we were dead in our sins, now we are alive in Christ. We want to honor Him. We want to fulfill all righteousness. And that's why we, we strive to be sinless. This is not something that we will ever achieve perfectly, but it is a pursuit to be holy. And out of gratitude for for His grace and out of a gratitude for the forgiveness that God has given to us, we want to please Him. We strive to please Him. And God has given us so much. He's given us His very own Son. We want to honor Him. We want to glorify Him. So antinomianism is unbiblical in that it misapplies the meaning of God's gracious favor. Um, Jesus Christ freed us from the commands, the burdensome commands of the Old Testament law. And we will investigate that and we will see how burdensome they were over the next few weeks. But that does not mean we now have a license to sin. That doesn't mean we can now do whatever we want. We are now under the, the covenant of grace. We are to strive to overcome sin. We are to cultivate righteousness in our, in our own lives. And the second approach, which I mentioned earlier on, is called legalism. And because Christianity is concerned with morality and righteousness and ethics, we can easily make that subtle move from, from a passionate concern for godly morality into a legalist way of living. It's a thin line. And the word legalism does not occur in the Bible, 
but it is a term that Christians use to describe this position that, that emphasizes a system of rules, a system of regulations for achieving salvation and for achieving spiritual growth. And legalists, they believe in and they demand a strict, literal adherence to, to the rules and the laws in the Old Testament. Uh, many people today still believe that they can keep the law and that they will be saved by their, their good works. The Seventh-day Adventists are, are one of these groups. And there are many other Christian groups which observe all the Jewish rituals and all the Jewish festivals and all, all the Jewish laws. But we are saved by grace through faith in the Savior. Not by works, lest any man should boast. That's what the scriptures tell us. So those who hold to this legalistic position, they fail to see the real purpose of the Old Testament laws of Moses, given to God through Moses. And the laws are to be our schoolmaster. The the, the Ten Commandments are to be our, our tutor, which is to bring us to Christ. And turn with me to to Matthew 5, if you would. In Matthew 5, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And perhaps this would be a, a next series for us to look at. But Jesus goes much deeper and he shows us the meaning of the law. He shows us the purpose of the law. And he says to us in verse 17... Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Remember what I said. Antinomianists, as well as legalists, they take this biblical teaching to an unbiblical conclusion. Christ did fulfill the law. Yes, he tells us right here he did. But he did not nullify the law. He did not alter the law. He didn't replace the law. Instead, here in this passage, he establishes the true intent, the true purpose of the law of God. And that's what we are going to be studying over the next few weeks. What is the purpose of the Mosaic law? What is the purpose of the Mosaic law? And we call it the Mosaic law not because Moses gave us the law because God gave us the law through Moses. Okay? And let me share with you briefly seven seven things which I believe help us to understand the purpose of the law. But we, before we do, it's, it's helpful for us to see that people have um, categorized the law into three subheadings. Um, There's a distinction made between the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. And the Ten Commandments, they fall under the moral law. But there are seven purposes of this Mosaic law, which we are going to, to look at briefly this morning. The first one we see in Leviticus chapter 19. The Mosaic law reveals the holy character of the eternal God to the nation of Israel. To begin with, we see God chooses Israel to be his special people. And he grants 
Israel these laws and he makes a, a promise with them. He makes a covenant with them. He will be their God and they will be his people. And they were to keep his laws. And we see the Lord does this on Mount Sinai in, in Exodus chapter 19 right through to chapter 31. But the second purpose of the Mosaic law is to set the, the nation of Israel apart as, as distinct from all the other pagan nat- nations that were surrounding them at, at the time. And remember, the Lord is the sovereign law giver. And God intends to make His people visibly holy. And as they obey His laws, they will be different. They will be distinct from, from other people. And this is a distinction that reflects the holy character of God. It doesn't reflect our, our great personality. It reflects the holy character of God. And perhaps that's why the law seems so sharp to so many people. And it's because it reflects the, the holy nature of, of God. But His special people should be distinguished from the pagan nation, nations. They should be different by the way they live, by the way they conduct themselves. They must not worship false gods. They must not worship false idols. They need to treat their servants carefully. They must ensure that that justice is done. They must seek mercy. They must be responsible. They must respect property. They must show compassion and so on and so on. All in the Ten Commandments. But in chapter 19, God is present there at Mount Sinai. And he speaks first to Moses and then to the people through Moses. And look what he says to them in chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, in verse 4, God says to them, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So thirdly, the Lord reveals so the law reveals the sinfulness of man. We see that in Galatians chapter 3, we see that in Romans chapter 3, in Romans chapter 7, in Acts chapter 13. And while the law shows God's righteousness, it also warns us, it also informs us, it also convicts us. The law also condemns every one of us because of our unrighteous nature. That's what it it must do. And although the law was was good and holy, it did not provide a way of salvation for the nations. It didn't provide a way of salvation to the Israelites. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. It tells us that in Romans chapter 3. But the fourth purpose of the law is to provide forgiveness through the sacrifice, through the offerings. And this happened in the Old Testament. We see these sacrifices continually, daily, going through the the temple, blood everywhere. 
And the law was to reveal sin and the need for a sacrifice to deal with it. And the sacrificial system and the old covenant was, was instituted temporarily. It was to deal with sin on a temporary basis. And it was a shadow to point people to the, the permanent sacrifice who would be the Messiah, who would be Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9, he tells us that under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So this blood from the, from the goats and the bulls and the lambs was to cover sin. It was a temporary covering. It could never take away that sin on a permanent basis. And that's why those sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over again. It was a costly exercise. To be a sinner in the Old Testament was expensive. You had to pay for that sin with that sacrifice. Often, it was a reminder. The law was a reminder that a sacrifice was needed. The fifth reason for the law is to provide a way of worship for the community of faith through the, the yearly feasts. We see that in Leviticus 23. A way for them to come together and corporately worship. The sixth purpose for the law was for God to provide direction to the people for their physical and the spiritual health of the nation. If you read Leviticus, you will see all the, all the very practical laws that are, are given for our own health. And lastly, we see the purpose of the law is to show people that they couldn't keep the law. But they needed someone who could and someone who did keep the law perfectly, who is no other than Jesus Christ himself. And he fulfilled the law, just as he said in, in Matthew 5. And he did pay the penalty that was required for the breaking of the law in his death, burial, and his bodily resurrection, when he took on the sins of the world for us, when he became our substitute, when he paid the price we should have paid. And the believer in Christ has, has the very righteousness of Christ. He has the righteousness of the Lord fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God lives in him and through him now. But let me show you a biblical example of this in the New Testament. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is sharing the gospel with a rich young ruler. And Jesus uses the law here. He uses the law and he fulfills all of these purposes like we've just read in one conversation with this rich young ruler. And Jesus Christ, of course, shows us how to use the law as a schoolmaster to show us our need for the Savior. So Luke tells us this man was a ruler. And scripture doesn't clarify what kind of ruler 
he was, what exactly he did. But notice that he was a man of influence, he was a man of authority, and he had a position of, of power. Uh, we know from um, verse 23, it tells us that he was extremely rich. And the, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that he was, he was young. So he was successful at a very young age, and he had a lot of influence um, in, the, in the community. He was what everybody esteemed to be. Rich, young, healthy. He seemed to have everything that the world wanted. But let's read there in Luke 18, from verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Now let's count them. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. There's only five commandments mentioned there. And he said, all of these I've kept from my youth. It's almost he's, he's ticking them in the, in the tick box there. In his mind, he's, he's perfect. All of these I've kept from my youth. In verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him with sadness and said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. So Jesus is challenging this this ruler. And we see earlier on that this ruler calls Jesus good. And Jesus says to him in verse 19, Why? Why do you call me good? There's no one who is good except God. Of course, Jesus knew he was God, but he, he wanted the ruler to honor God. And this ruler was measuring himself against other people. He wasn't measuring himself with the, the litmus test of God. He was measuring himself according to other people. And Jesus in turn, he, he wanted to shock this ruler because he had a, a defective understanding of what goodness really is. And no one is good in comparison to God. We all fall short of the, the glory of God. But the ruler was making the mistake that all of us make today. And that is to compare ourselves to, to each other. However, the Lord continues to show him his sinfulness. And Jesus says to the ruler in verse 20, You know the commandments. And he mentions five of them. And these come all from the, the, the Ten Commandments. These, this is from the second table of the, the law. And it's, it's a little bit surprising, isn't it, that, that Jesus responds in this way. Um, he seems to be suggesting that you can enter the kingdom of God by obeying the commandments. Almost like the legalists would today. It seems to be. But you need to see the whole passage here to understand that is not what Jesus is saying. 
Because he says, with man it is impossible. It is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Look at verse 21. The ruler says to Jesus, all of these commands I have kept from my youth. I mean, this is, this is a very self-righteous response. Now, he believed that he had been able to obey these commandments. He was, he was lying to himself. And he was lying to Jesus as well. Or he simply had a very superficial understanding of what obedience really was. He did not realize that, that getting angry was also murder in your heart just as Jesus explains in in Matthew 5 he didn't understand that lusting upon a woman was also adultery in the heart he had a very superficial understanding but Jesus did not challenge the ruler on this shallow understanding he didn't challenge him on this weak understanding of the law however when Jesus heard him respond like this look what Jesus says in verse 22 One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. And come, follow me. And here Jesus being the the master teacher himself, he exposes this man's sinful, covetous heart. And the tenth commandment is, thou shalt not covet. And right here again, the Lord is using the ten commandments. To show this man his sinful nature, his covetous heart. We know that the man loved riches. It tells us he was exceedingly rich. He enjoyed everything that his money could buy. And although he had a, a spiritual vacuum in his, in his life, and that's why he came to the Lord, remember? He, he recognized there was a spiritual vacuum. And even though that was there, And even though this rich young ruler needed to repent of this this sin that he was trying to fulfill this void within his life, he did not. He chose not to. The Lord revealed and exposed his sin very, very accurately here. But he was not willing to repent. He was self-righteous. He was not willing to admit that he was a, a sinner. He wasn't willing to exchange his sins for the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus. We see in verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. When Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, he says in verse 24, how difficult It is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now the Lord's not saying people must sell everything. He's not saying the gospel is social. He's not saying sell what you have and then you can go to heaven. That's not the gospel message. What the Lord is saying here is that this is this man's idol. Wealth is his idol. And he is not willing to repent of this. He is worshipping this idol in his heart. The Lord says very accurately to all of us how difficult it is for all of those who love wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus makes this famous comment in verse 25. And this is a 
a verse which I've seen. Sorry, that's verse 26. But look at verse 25. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible. That's basically what he's saying. It's impossible. If you've ever seen a camel go through a sewing needle, please let me know. I'd love to hear that story. It's impossible. And in verse 26, the disciples that were with Jesus and the others that were listening, they responded, then who, who can be saved? You know, they were shocked. And the question is is understandable because the Hebrews believed that wealthy people were blessed by God. And here was a man who was clearly wealthy, who God was saying, who Jesus was saying, cannot enter the kingdom of God. You know, the Hebrews believed that the Pharisees were the ones who were the keepers of the law. And they kept the law of God. And they believed rich people were ones who had received favor by God. So obviously, the Pharisees were wealthy as well. But however, Jesus makes it clear that this is not the case. He makes it very clear. When Jesus said this, he was saying something which shocked them. It stunned them. They couldn't believe this. So then nobody can be saved? But the next verse kind of reveals exactly what he's trying to teach you. In verse 27, and this is the verse that I've seen tattooed on people's arms, athletes' arms, um, different ways, and probably out of context as well. But Jesus says in verse 27, What is impossible with man is possible with God. This is one of the greatest answers in the entire word of God. And here we must understand that salvation is clearly a work of God. It can only happen by God. It cannot happen by man. No matter who we are, no matter how wealthy we are, no matter how educated we are, no matter how clever we are, no matter what your bank balance is, we cannot earn our salvation. It is God who saves sinners. We are incapable of obeying the commandments of God perfectly. The Apostle James tells us this clearly in James chapter 2 verse 10. The scriptures say, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Or has become guilty for all of it. If we break one of the laws, we break all of the laws. We cannot keep the law. And no matter how hard we try, we will never perfectly obey the commandments of God. And that is why we have to cry out to God for mercy, like the tax collector did. We have to beat in our chest, and we, the only hope we have is Jesus Christ, who did perfectly fulfill the law. The only hope that this world has. God made himself a way for us to be reconciled to him. He made a way. For us to escape the sin, the punishment of the sin that we deserve. He made a way. We see in Matthew 1.21 when Gabriel, the angel, appears to, to Joseph. And he says, 
you will have a son and you will call his name Jesus. Why? Jesus means Savior. He will save his people from their sins. That is the way that God provided. Jesus Christ would save his people from their sins. We all fall short of the glory of God. We will never perfectly keep the law. We fail. But Jesus, God gives us his son, Jesus, who would save his people from their sins. And it's only Jesus who would meet the perfect requirements of the law. And it's only Jesus who could offer himself as the perfect, sufficient substitute, the perfect sacrifice, who would die once and once for all. So as we see from scriptures, the law functions to expose our sin. It functions to expose our unrighteousness. And when a sinner looks into the mirror of God's law, he sees himself for who he really is. We're depraved. We're sinful. We are undone. We're lost. And we are in need of a savior. As the, as the Puritans, they famously put it, the law wounds, but then the gospel comes, arrives, and it heals. The law wounds, but then the gospel comes, arrives, and heals. Let me share a quote with you by Charles Spurgeon. And he writes the following on the law and its purpose for mankind. He says, The law is also very useful because it shows us our defections and our stains. I love the way he He uses this English here. He says, It is like the looking glass which my lady holds up to her face, that she may see if there be any spot on it. But she cannot wash her face with the looking glass. When the mirror has done its utmost, then there are the same stains. It cannot take away a single spot. It can only show where one is. And the law, though it reveals our sin, our shortcomings, our transgressions, it cannot remove the sin or the transgression. It is weak for that purpose because it was never intended to accomplish such an end. I think it's a wonderful picture there. The, the, the mirror just reveals, the mirror just reflects. We need the soap, we need the water to cleanse. We need Jesus' blood to wash us of our sins. So in conclusion, and in a brief summary, the moral law of God serves as number one, a mirror. Romans 3 verse 20 tells us, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It serves as a mirror. And it serves as a restrainer of evil. The law of God functions to keep evil away. It functions to keep us from, from doing evil. As we have seen, the moral law has no power to remove the sin, but it certainly doesn't have the power to regenerate our heart, but it does have the power to keep evil at a distance. John was sharing a story with me this week from a friend who's a contractor who comes from Morocco, comes from one of those Arab countries. And he's an expat here working in the UAE. And he said to John, the most wicked people that he knows are living here in the UAE, are expats in the UAE. He says these people that he knows wouldn't hesitate to stab you in the back. But they refrain from doing so because of the strict law 
that is here in the UAE. They refrain from doing so because they know the severe consequences of breaking the law in the United Arab Emirates. But it's interesting, John made a comment that he says their fear of, of losing income is greater than their love for others. And that, may be, that may be true. But what, but what is true of the laws here in the UAE are true of the Mosaic laws as well. They restrain evil. John Calvin, one of the, the reformers, he wrote the following. Here's a comment that he wrote about the moral law of God. He said, They are restrained, not because their inner mind is stirred or affected, but because being bridled, so to speak, they keep their hands from outward activity and hold inside the depravity that otherwise they would wantonly have indulged. Consequently, they are neither better nor more righteous before God, hindered by fright or shame. They dare neither execute what they have conceived in their minds, nor openly breathe for the rage of their, their lusts. Last summary. The word of God, the, the law of God, is a revelation of the will of God. Believers who have been transformed by the gospel, we love the law. It helps us to honor God. It helps us to please God. And it is a guide to help us live sanctified lives. And the law reveals for us God's perfect will. It reveals for us God's perfect righteousness. And a believer can come to delight in God's commands. However, only after their heart has been changed. If our hearts have never been changed, we do not delight in the law of God. We do not pant after God like a deer pants for the water. We don't want that. We want the sin that we are chained and slaves in. But those whose hearts have been changed, we want to honor God. And God expects us to do that. He tells us in in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, This is love for God, to obey His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. We don't keep the law because it's a duty. We have to do this, otherwise I'm going to get in trouble. We do it because we love God. We love God. We want to please God. We want to honor Him with our lives. So no, we're not under the Old Testament law. Like the legalists would want us to believe. That is not what the scriptures teach. The law makes demands that none of us could keep, as we have seen clearly. And to break one of them is to be guilty of all of them, as Jesus told us in Matthew 5. But the purpose of the Mosaic law raises two questions to the unbeliever as we, as we finish here this morning. And the question, the first one, are you trusting in yourself? To keep all the commandments all the time, which you can't do. But are you doing that? Or have you repented of your self-righteousness and believed in Jesus as your Savior, realizing that He alone has fulfilled all the commandments all of the time? Have you done that? Or are you still a slave to your, to your sin? 
The law of God demonstrates that man has no righteousness in himself. He has no righteousness that pleases God. And sinful man must be given a righteousness that is, that is not our own, that is alien, as the theologians put it. And that alien righteousness comes from Jesus himself. It is an imputed righteousness. It's a double imputation. He gives us his righteousness and we give him our sins. Hebrews 9.15 tells us, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And the priest could only cover sins and even their own sins needed to be covered repeatedly. They had to make sacrifices to each other. But now, the scriptures tell us, Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And this is the reason Jesus has appeared once for all the end of the ages to come, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So to the believer here this morning, let us remember that we are a people of grace. We're not a people of law. We are people of grace who love to keep the law because we love Jesus. But it is God's law that still demonstrates his spotless character It is God's law that is our measuring rod and shows us our need for continual grace, shows our need for the gospel every single day of our lives. And as Paul admonished young Timothy, and he told him in 1 Timothy 1 verse 8, may God teach us how to use the law lawfully. And I pray over the next couple of weeks that the law would become very precious to us. Not because we're trying to, to follow it in order to be saved, but because we're trying to love and please our Savior. May the law be a tool that we can use to help people see their need for a Savior as well. And I hope that this series will equip us to be people that can handle the Word of God, that can share the Gospel effectively just as Jesus did here to the rich young ruler. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your, for your grace in sending Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for giving us what we don't deserve. We have all broken your law. Lord, we have all fallen short of your standard for us. And we all deserve to be punished. But while we were yet in our sins, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, you came to save us from us. And Lord, that is, that is grace. That is grace right there that we are so thankful for this morning. So Father, I pray that those who feel condemned this morning would call upon the name of the Lord. Those who feel condemned this morning would realize that it's not because of me, but it's because of their sin.
So it's sin that condemns them. So it's not Christ that condemns them. Christ came to set us free, and to give us eternal life, and to give us hope, to give us everlasting, fulfilled joy with you in heaven. So it's not Christ that condemns this morning. It is their sin. And the law has just exposed that. And I pray it will continue to expose that over the next few weeks, couple of months. That we would understand what sin really is according to your definition. So I pray, Lord, that you would do a work amongst us this couple of months, the next couple of months. Father, that we would not be like the rich young ruler and justify our sin and be self-righteous. But Lord, that we would be honest. Honest with ourselves. Honest with you. And be willing to allow the Lord to expose the sin that is in our hearts that we are idolizing. Father, that you give us grace to repent. Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you and call upon the name of Jesus that we will be washed in the blood of the Lamb. So Father, we ask for you to do this work amongst us for the sake of your name and for the joy of your people. I ask this prayer. Amen.